Good evening, Crypt Keepers, and welcome home, you know, to the Crypt. I'm joined, as always, by a man who overpays his credit card bills just a little bit, just so when he's asked about his financial situation, he can say, them bitches owe me money. Ryan, what's up? I did that once. Not <laughs> for that reason, but I accidentally double paid, like, by 1500 bucks. <laughs> And when I call the credit card company, they're like, hmm, sorry, there's nothing we can do about that at all. It's already done. When I call my bank, they're like, oh, yeah, we can totally reverse that. That's hilarious. So they didn't know me for very long. <laughs> wow. But yeah, they, they actually did say that. They were like, well, we just owe you now. Yeah, so just like, okay, you, well, you have a $1,500 credit on your credit card. <laughs> right. Like, no, dude, I want the cash. <laughs> yeah, give me the cash. I'm, I'm, yeah, I got, I got rent to pay. <laughs> exactly. All right, as always, guys, if you like us, share us with somebody you think will like us as well. You know, that's the easiest way for us to grow. You can also like, subscribe, comment, whatever it is you can do on your particular platform or even social media. You can find out what we're selling at CrypticPodcastStore.com. You can find us on TikTok and YouTube at CrypticPodcast, with an underscore for TikTok, without for YouTube. And you can check out Parabox at the link in the show notes. There's a lot to go over, so you want to get started? Yeah, so tonight's episode is going to be a two-parter, but we're talking about the Salem Witch Trials. You want to start? The Salem Witch Trials occurred in Colonial, Massachusetts from February 1692 to May of 1693, involving hearings and prosecutions of over 200 individuals accused of witchcraft. 200. That's insane. Out of the accused, 30 were... Yeah, that's like all the people that were there in 1693. Right. Out of the accused, 30 were convicted, with 19 being hanged. 14 women and 5 men. Uh, Giles Corey, a man who refused to plead, was pressed to death. And at least 5 individuals perished in jail. Arrests occurred in various towns beyond Salem and Salem Village, though. The capital crime cases were overseen by a, a court of Oyer and Terminer in 1692 and the Superior Court of Judicature in 1693, both situated in Salem Town, where the executions also happened. This event marked the most lethal witch hunt in colonial North American history. In the 17th century, only 14 women and two men had been executed for witchcraft in Massachusetts and Connecticut combined. The incident stands as one of colonial America's most infamous instances of widespread panic. In American context, the events in Salem have been employed in political discourse and popular literature as a stark cautionary narrative, highlighting the perils of isolation, religious extremism, unjust accusations, and failures in legal proceedings. Numerous historians assert that the enduring impacts of these trials significantly shaped the course of the United States' history. As historian George Lincoln Burr states, Salem witchcraft was the catalyst that shattered the theocracy. Do you want to get in the background? By the mid-17th century, witch trials were diminishing in many parts of Europe. However, they persisted on in the periphery of Europe and in the American colonies. Salem during 1692 and 1693 represented a short-lived surge of hysteria in the New World, contrasting with the declining prevalence of such trials in most European regions. In 1668, Joseph Glanville published Against Modern Seducism, wherein he asserted his ability to provide evidence for the existence of witches and supernatural entities like ghosts. 
Glanville's work centered on challenging skepticism regarding bodily resurrection and supernatural spirits. In his treatise, Glanville argued that intelligent individuals should have faith in the existence of witches and apparitions. He contended that doubting the reality of spirits meant rejecting not only demons, but also the omnipotent God. Glanville's objective was to demonstrate that the supernatural realm was undeniable. Those who rejected the existence of apparitions were deemed heretical, as it contradicted their belief in angels as well. Figures like Glanville and Cotton Mather endeavored to provide evidence that demons were alive. What you just read was really important because I think that's skipped a lot of the time. Like, there's always the element of religious fervor, Mm -hmm. but not, to use a more modern word, like an agenda to prove, like, all of this is real. You know, if this bad stuff is real, the good stuff is real, too. The witch trials commenced following accusations of witchcraft, mainly originating from individuals like Elizabeth Hubbard, age 17, and even some younger ones. Astonishingly, Dorothy Good, who was merely four or five years old, also faced accusations of witchcraft. The first documented witchcraft execution occurred in 1647, when Alsie Young was put to death in Hartford, Connecticut, marking the beginning of the Connecticut witch trials, which continued until 1663. Alright, so New England was established by religious dissenters who aimed to create a society rooted in the principles of the Bible, shaped by their particular beliefs, right? Kind of like in Eurotrip, they're talking about America being founded by prudes. <laughs> this is kind of the religious group that did it, right? King James II appointed Sir Edmund Andros as the governor of the Dominion of New England. Andros was removed from power in 1689 during the Glorious Revolution in England which saw the Catholic King James II replaced by the Protestant co-monarchs William and Mary. Simon Bradstreet and Thomas Danforth, who were the last leaders of the colony under the previous charter, resumed their positions as governor and deputy governor. However, their authority was legally compromised due to the nullification of the old charter. Tensions flared between English settlers in the eastward region, or present-day Maine coast, and the French-supported Wabanaki people, sparking King William's War. This conflict occurred 13 years after the devastating King Philip's War involving Wampanoag and other indigenous tribes in southern and western New England. In October of 1690, Sir William Phipps led an unsuccessful assault on French-controlled Quebec. From 1689 to 1692, Native American attacks persisted on several English settlements along the Maine coast, leading to the abandonment of some of these settlements and triggering an influx of refugees into areas like Essex County. After four years of effort by Increase Mather, a new charter for the expanded province of Massachusetts Bay was granted final approval in England on October 16, 1691. During this period, Mather collaborated with William Phipps, often in London, and gained access to Whitehall. Increase Mather, who had written a book on witchcraft in 1684, and his son, Cotton Mather, who published a similar work in 1689, played significant roles in this endeavor. Increase claimed to have selected the individuals for the new government. News of this successful charter acquisition and Phipps' appointment as the new governor reached Boston by late January. A copy of the new charter arrived in Boston on February 8th of 1692. Phipps himself arrived in Boston on May 14th, and he was inaugurated as governor two days later alongside Lieutenant Governor William Stoughton. 
Among their initial tasks on May 27th of 1692, the new governor and council formally nominated county justices of the peace, sheriffs, and established a special court of Oyer and Terminer to address the considerable number of individuals overcrowding the jails. When they're talking about Oyer and Terminer, I think what they're talking about is like an indictment and a grand jury hearing, but that's kind of how they say mm-hmm. it. Yeah, old school terms. And so at this point, we're, you know, there's been a lot of turmoil, a lot of things happening in the area, wars, conflicts. You know, we have an English government, you know, a revolution. We have new charters, mm-hmm. we have new leaders, and we're basically bringing in two people who've written books about witchcraft now coming into positions of power. So not great. But do you want to get into the local context? Salem Village, now known as Danvers, Massachusetts, was characterized by its contentious population, frequently embroiled in internal conflicts and disputes with Salem Town, which is now modern-day Salem. Disagreements over property boundaries, grazing rights, and church privileges were commonplace, and the villagers were often perceived as quarrelsome by their neighbors. In 1672, the villagers decided to appoint their own minister, separate from Salem Town. The initial two ministers, James Bailey and George Burroughs, had short tenures, each leaving after encountering difficulties in receiving full compensation from the congregation, so they weren't paying their ministers. Interesting. George Burroughs, in particular, faced a tragic fate as he was arrested amid the height of the witchcraft frenzy and subsequently hanged as a witch. Despite the general court upholding the minister's rights and admonishing the parish, both James Bailey and George Burroughs decided to depart. The third minister, Diodat Lawson, also had a short tenure, leaving when the church in Salem declined to ordain him. The disagreement within the parish extended to the selection of their first ordained minister, Samuel Paris, and he will be in the middle of all this. On June 18, 1689, the villagers reached an agreement to hire Paris for a yearly salary of 66 pounds, with one-third paid in money and the remaining two-thirds provided in provision. Additionally, Paris would have access to the parsonage, which is the house that the minister, the priest, the reverend, whatever, stays in that yeah, kind of what we would probably call a rectory. Yeah. Today. However, on October 10th, 1689, they increased his privileges, deciding to award him the deed to the parsonage along with two acres of land. So he's getting some power pretty quickly here. This action contradicted a village resolution from 1681, which explicitly stated that, quote, it shall not be lawful for the inhabitants of this village to convey the houses or lands or any other concerns belonging to the ministry to any particular persons or person, not for any cause, by vote or other ways. End quote. Basically saying, we're not going to give him all this stuff. While the history of previous ministers and the prevailing conflicts in Salem Village provided justifiable reasons for reluctance in assuming the position, Reverend Paris inadvertently exacerbated the village's divisions by prolonging his acceptance. His inability to mediate the disputes among his parishioners further intensified the strained environment. Paris just made matters worse by intentionally seeking out what he deemed 
iniquitous behavior within the congregation, subjecting even minor infractions by church members in good standing to public penance. Yeah, so basically they made him the minister and then he started nitpicking all them. <laughs> so right. it's it's kind of funny, but it's also kind of foreshadowing that, you know, he thinks that he has this power to punish is a word that would work, right? Because yeah. they're probably out, you know, holding a sign that says, you know, I was 10 minutes late to church this morning or, you know, whatever. So. Yeah, and you egged my carriage or my horse. Right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we'll find out more after a quick break. Welcome back, Crypt Keepers. War Booty. Tell us about the religious context. Alright. So let's start with Reverend Cotton Mather. Before the upheaval of the 1680s, the political landscape in Massachusetts was primarily influenced by conservative Puritan secular leaders, kind of like we described. You know, they came here to do their own thing by their own rules. While both Puritans and the Church of England were rooted in Calvinism, Puritans had significant disagreements with many Church of England practices. They opposed the use of the Book of Common Prayer, wearing clergy vestments during services, employing the sign of the cross in baptism, and kneeling during communion as these practices were seen as aligned with popery. <laughs> Not to be confused with the dried uh, flower <laughs> petals in your bathroom. <laughs> but a Great word. King... <laughs> King Charles I held contrary views. The Anglican Church authorities attempted to suppress dissenting opinions in the 1620s and 30s. Certain Puritans and other religious minorities initially sought sanctuary in the Netherlands, but many eventually undertook a significant migration to colonial North America in their quest to establish a society more in line with their beliefs. The largest and most economically significant among them was the Massachusetts Bay Colony. The selection of colonial leaders rested with the freedom of the colony. Individuals whose religious experiences had undergone formal examination and who had gained admission to one of the Puritan congregations. So, religious requirements to participate in government, basically. Right. The colonial leadership comprised prominent figures from these congregations, and they frequently engaged in, con in consultations with local ministers to address the challenges and decisions confronting the colony. So, yeah, it's like a bunch of church moms running the government. As we mentioned before, in the early 1640s, England was in a civil war. The parliamentarians, largely influenced by Puritans, emerged triumphant, resulting in the establishment of the Protectorate under Oliver Cromwell in 1653, which replaced the monarchy. However, the eventual downfall of the Protectorate led to the reinstatement of the old monarchy under Charles II. In Massachusetts, a prosperous merchant class began to emerge during these years, and unlike the colony's initial settlers, this class was driven less by religious motives and more by economic pursuits. But there is more to go into based on gender, which is a hairy subject even now. <laughs> or do you have other comments? Uh, no, I was just going to say that I think most people, when they think of a witch, they think of a woman. A warlock yeah, would it, technically be the term for the 
the male witch, but they're... I always thought it was interesting that the Harry Potter books never made a gender distinction. Or did they? I, witches and wizards? I guess it is no witches idea. and wizards. What? Yeah, it's witches and wizards instead of witches and warlocks. Mm, warlock probably is something that would be seen as more uh, dark, evil, yeah, than a wizard. I think there's a different context to it. Anyway. A significant majority of those accused and convicted of witchcraft were women in about 80% of the cases. Puritans held the view that women were inherently inclined towards sinfulness and more vulnerable to damnation than men. I would say that that is highly backwards. I think that when we see you know in society if you want to call it sins or whatever i think that men are way 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 worse than women yeah i mean even um jordan peterson everybody's favorite mm -hmm. <laughs> not controversial at all no i saw you know this talk from a long uh, i think a fairly long time ago where he was talking about um where like where we come from and where behaviors come from evolutionarily mm -hmm. and how men would need to be you know so brutal and whatever to be able to protect the tribe or hunt or do all this right. stuff and women needed to be like more virtuous and mm -hmm. just better people to care for kids and like raise the next generation and be like the backbone of the community yeah and he was saying like that's why like a lot of men are monsters but they keep it in check. Mm -hmm. Like, like at, at their core, a man is like a is like a monster that just like has himself under control. But you're like you still have that in you, right? So I think I think that's right. I think you are correct in that that kind of lends more towards like corruptibility. Absolutely, because you have it more in you that you can go out and do things that a woman might not necessarily think to do. We don't have time to get into that. Uh, sure. So we kind of both agree that that's backwards. Um, so in their daily lives, particularly Puritan women, actively worked to resist the devil's influence and protect their souls from corruption. While Puritans believed in the equality of men and women in the eyes of God, uh, white men and women, they held mm. that women's souls were more exposed due to their perceived physical weakness and vulnerability. So they're thinking that their souls are weaker because they can't bench 300 pounds. <laughs> Various factors yeah. could account for why women were more likely to admit guilt of witchcraft compared to men. Historian Elizabeth Reese suggests that some women may have genuinely believed they had succumbed to the devil's temptation, while others might have thought such surrender was temporary. It's it's hard to say because it depends on where you stand religiously. Do you think that the devil is tempting people? I mean, I do, but I don't associate any temptations I might have with the devil. You know, I internalize mm -hmm. it. Like It's like you go to Jack in the Box and they're like, hey, sorry for the delay. Would you like a piece of New York cheesecake? And you're like... I'm tempted, but is this a spirit making me do this? <laughs> right, yeah, okay, that's a good way to say it. No, it, it, you know, we we all have, you know, the yin and yang inside us, is my belief. Mm -hmm. But anyway, yeah. they did not believe that. They believed that anything that was negative was brought by an outside source. So, 
it's hard to accept responsibility for things when you blame everything on someone else. Yeah. How does the uh, proverb go? It's uh, a man who blames everyone else has a long journey. A man who blames himself is halfway there. And a man who blames no one is happy. Or something like that. Oh. Because those who confessed were reintegrated into society, some women might have admitted guilt to preserve their lives. So if you're put in this situation, I really don't blame anyone for anything they say to try and get out of it because these women are all innocent and these men right. uh, but they they're being accused of something they could be put to death for rather quickly so so abigail faulkner faced allegations in 1692 and she acknowledged being upset by gossip and suggested that the devil might have briefly taken control leading to harm inflicted upon her neighbors. Women who deviated from the established norms of Puritan society were more susceptible to such accusations. This was particularly true for women who were unmarried or did not conform to the conventional role of motherhood. So just being a little bit different from these, I mean, they're kind of goody two-shoe church Bible thumpers, if you're not yeah. doing exactly like they are, you're probably under control of the devil. Alright. Alright, tell us about Cotton. Cotton Mather, who we've mentioned before and was a prominent minister at Boston's North Church, was known for his prolific publication of pamphlets, any of which conveyed his... Kind of like podcasts in the day, right? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, many of which conveyed a strong belief in witchcraft. In his work titled Memorable Providences Relating to Witchcrafts and Possessions, published in 1689 and with such a catchy title, Mather detailed his observations and discussed how remarkable witchcraft had impacted the offspring of John Goodwin, a mason residing in Boston. Mather's account depicts how the eldest child of the Goodwin family was lured by the devil and stole linen from the washerwoman. Goody Glover. Glover, an elderly woman of Irish Catholic descent, was portrayed as disagreeable and had been labeled a witch by her husband, which may have led to accusations of her casting spells on the Goodwin children. Following this incident, four out of the six Goodwin children began experiencing unusual fits, colloquially referred to as the disease of astonishment. These fits, initially attributed to an illness, became associated with witchcraft due to their disturbing nature. The afflicted children exhibited symptoms such as neck and back pains, tongues appearing to be pulled from their throats, and loud erratic outbursts. Additionally, they lost control over their bodies, displaying behaviors like becoming unnaturally limber, flapping their arms like birds, or attempting to harm others as well as themselves. These symptoms played a significant role in fueling the hysteria of 1692. So picture this. You're in what they called a meeting house, which is also a church. Right, They don't call it a church, but that's basically what it is. And you're being brought before someone who's going to judge if they have enough evidence to prosecute. But it's not really a fair hearing. You walk in and all the people we talked about, the Bible-thumping, goody-two-shoes people, are there right and that's yeah. their that's that's 
how things were done back then. They didn't necessarily like break the law with that. But then... But things were public. Public, yeah. And then you have 15 girls that when you walk in the room, they start basically faking seizures. And mm, yeah. they're saying, this is your fault. You did this. And we'll get into spectral evidence later, but it's just people saying that you're making their bodies do weird things is going to get you hanged. Let's go over the timeline. In February of 1692 in Salem Village, nine-year-old Betty Paris and her 11-year-old cousin Abigail Williams, who were the daughter and niece of Reverend Samuel Paris, the man in charge, they began experiencing fits that were described as being, quote, beyond the capacity of epileptic fits or natural illness to cause. So that was not like a doctor's analysis. You know, that was the Reverend Samuel Paris's analysis. The girls exhibited behaviors such as screaming, throwing objects around the room, making unusual sounds, hiding beneath furniture, and contorting themselves into peculiar positions. None of them were ever described as being something like you would see in a possession, where they would move in such a way that would be impossible physically, right? Levitation or, you know, stuff like that. But they also reported sensations of being pinched and pricked with pins. A doctor who is commonly identified as William Griggs, as this history is a bit murky, right, examined them but found no apparent physical cause for their distress. Soon, the other young women in the village started displaying similar behaviors. When Reverend Deodat Lawson delivered a sermon as a guest in the Salem Village Meeting House, he was repeatedly disrupted by the outbursts and disturbances of the afflicted individuals. So he's trying to give a sermon and these same girls are, you know, doing the same thing, but nobody connected it to him. It was still the witch's fault. I just find that interesting, but... The initial three individuals accused and apprehended for supposedly afflicting Betty Harris, Abigail Williams, and then later Ann Putnam Jr., who was only 12, and then Elizabeth Hubbard, were Sarah Good, Sarah Osborne, and Tituba. Uh, she's not given a last name. She was the Good Reverend's slave. Some historians theorize that Ann Putnam Jr.'s accusation hints at a significant role played by a family feud in triggering the witch trials. A bitter rivalry raged between the Putnam and Porter families, leading to deep divisions within the Salem community. Interestingly, some of the physical symptoms exhibited by the afflicted girls bore resemblance to the effects of convulsive ergot poisoning, a hypothesis proposed nearly 284 years later. All right, so basically what it is it's a mold that grows on rye bread and it can cause hallucinations and all kinds of weird stuff and basically somebody came later and said that he thought this hysteria was caused by ergot poisoning. Sarah Good was a destitute woman accused of witchcraft because of her reputation. 
At her trial, she was accused of rejecting Puritan ideals of self-control and discipline when she chose to torment and scorn children instead of leading them towards the path of salvation. So this is a 100% religious accusation. Yeah, and it's not the only one. Right. Sarah Osborne's regular attendance at church meetings made her stand out. She faced accusations of witchcraft due to the prevailing Puritan belief that her actions were driven by self-interest. So, not only do you have people making religious accusations, you have people that are trying to identify your motives for not being so interested in the church. Yeah, I mean, it's not even just a disinterest. It could have been she has to be at home to take care of something or work or whatever it is that she does. There are a lot of things that can keep you away from church. Unless you're really well off. Yeah. (laughs) It seems like a lot of the people that were standing in judgment were, you know, pretty well-to-do people, so. Yeah, people who wanted to be seen at church because that was the place to be seen. Yeah. That's that's true. That's very true. They weren't on TikTok back then. <laughs> She's like, observe how virtuous I am. How I keep my home clean. I clean the uh, what do you call chamber pot so well. Yes, it sparkles, and glistens. <laughs> uh, so some of this kind of uh, dislike for her came from the fact that she, I guess, got divorced and then married an indentured servant. So the Puritan community disapproved of her attempts to assert control over her son's inheritance from her previous marriage, deeming it contrary to their societal norms. At this point, it's like, you're just a little bit different, so. This contributed to suspicions and accusations of witchcraft against her. Tituba, an enslaved woman of South American Kalina origin from the West Indies, likely became a target of accusations due to her distinct ethnic background that set her apart from the majority of villagers. I don't think that's even a question. No, not even a surprise. No. Unfortunately. She was accused of captivating young girls like Abigail Williams and Betty Paris with stories from the Malleus Maleficarum, a treatise on witchcraft. These stories revolved around themes of sexual liaisons with demons, manipulation of men's thoughts, and fortune-telling. Such narratives sparked the girls' imaginations and made Tituba an easy target for accusations. They were brought before local magistrates on charges of witchcraft. Interrogation spanning several days began on March 1, 1692, ultimately leading to their imprisonment. In March, the list of accused individuals grew to include Martha Corey, Dorothy Good, who was just a child, Rebecca Nurse in Salem Village, and Rachel Clinton in nearby Ipswich. Martha Corey drew attention due to her skepticism regarding the credibility of the girls' accusations. And I don't know if we'll get into it real quick, but uh, it should be known that Tituba did admit to what they called signing the devil's book, which meant joining the devil. But she said that she saw nine other names that were signed. So at this point, they know that they have these three 
accused witches, but there's nine more out there. And I don't judge Tituba for saying that because, you know, she is number one on the list of about to get executed, right? She knows that. Right. And so maybe she's trying to buy herself a little bit of time or, or whatever, but, you know, I don't judge her for that. It did lead to some other stuff, but she's just trying to figure out a way to get out of this, and rightfully so. Martha Corey drew attention due to her skepticism regarding the credibility of the girl's accusations. The charges against her and Rebecca Nurse deeply unsettled the community, as both were esteemed members of their respective churches. This raised concerns that if such respected individuals could be accused of witchcraft, then anyone could be vulnerable to such accusations, undermining the notion that church membership offered protection. Despite being just four years old, Dorothy Good, the daughter of Sarah Good, was not exempt from questioning by the magistrates. Her responses were interpreted as a confession that indirectly implicated her mother. In Ipswich, Rachel Clinton was arrested for witchcraft towards the end of March based on separate charges unrelated to the girl's afflictions in Salem Village. During the initial exams, accused individuals underwent physical inspections that included a search for distinctive marks such as moles or birthmarks, which were commonly believed to be indicative of the devil's influence. It was thought that these markings symbolized the devil consuming the blood of the accused women. Wow, I would not I would not do well. Cause I rarely wore a shirt as a child and I'm very fair and I have freckles and like moles and marks all over me. That's gross. Nobody wants to hear that. <laughs> yeah, I've got scars but not not really birthmarks, but in any case these birthmarks became known as witches' teats. Find out more after a quick break. Welcome back, Crypt Keepers. Tell us more. All right. So up to this point, we've seen... How this area has been founded, how political turmoil has brought it to the point it's at, uh, with sort of religious extremists running everything, and, you know, we're getting into witch hunts, you know, looking for evidence of things that are probably not there. You know, the whole purpose behind that phrase. Now we'll get to Magistrate Samuel Sewell. The deposition of Abigail Williams v. George Jacobs Sr. In April, Sarah Cloyce, Rebecca Nurse's sister, and Elizabeth Proctor were arrested and presented before magistrates John Haythorne and Jonathan Corwin in a meeting held in Salem Town. Haythorne and Corwin were not only local magistrates but also members of the Governor's Council. Deputy Governor Thomas Danforth, along with assistants Samuel Sewell, Samuel Appleton, James Russell, and Isaac Addington, were present during the examination. The pres- as the proceedings unfolded, objections raised by Elizabeth's husband, John Proctor, led to his own arrest on the same day. This series of events marked a significant escalation in the ongoing Salem witch trials. In the span of a week, several more individuals were arrested and subjected to examination. 
Among them were Giles Corey, who was Martha Corey's husband and a member of a covenanted church in Salem Town, along with Abigail Hobbs, Bridget Bishop, Mary Warren, a servant in the Proctor household and sometimes an accuser, and Deliverance Hobbs, stepmother of Abigail Hobbs. Abigail Hobbs, Mary Warren, and Deliverance Hobbs all confessed during their examinations and began implicating additional individuals as accomplices in witchcraft. Subsequently, a series of arrests ensued involving Sarah Wilds, William Hobbs, Nehemiah Abbott Jr., Mary Eastie, Edward Bishop Jr., and his wife Sarah Bishop, as well as Mary English. On April 30th, a number of individuals were arrested, including Reverend George Burroughs, Lydia Dustin, Susanna Martin, Dorcas Hoare, which is how that's like boar with an H, <laughs> H-O-A-R, I just want to like cover ourselves there, sure. Sarah Morey, and Philip English. Nehemiah Abbott Jr. was released from custody after the accusers determined he was not the person whose apparition had afflicted them. That brings up a good point. Um... So he was not the person whose apparition had afflicted them. And what they're saying is not that Rebecca Nurse or Sarah Good or any of these people, George Burroughs, that they're physically going to them and touching them or putting a spell on them or, or whatever they thought that the witches did. But their ghost and they're the only ones that can see it because that's how it works so you have like a 12 year old girl saying that the apparition of George Burroughs came and wanted me to sign the devil's book I'm having these convulsions and nobody else can see the apparition but me this is going to lead to death sentences for people. Go ahead. Yeah. All right. Mary Eastie was briefly released a few days after her initial arrest when the accusers failed to confirm her as the cause of their affliction. But she was later rearrested when the accusers reconsidered their stance. Throughout May, accusations continued to surface, although some suspects managed to evade capture. Despite multiple warrants, John Willard and Elizabeth Colson were eventually apprehended, while George Jacobs Jr. and Daniel Andrews remained at large. On May 27th of 1692, Governor William Phipps issued an order to establish a special court of Oyer and Terminer for Suffolk, Essex, and Middlesex counties, all named after English counties, unsurprisingly, which is odd to see them. Anyway. Or sex. <laughs> This court was tasked with prosecuting the cases of those in prison for witchcraft. More warrants were issued for additional individuals. Tragically, Sarah Osborne, one of the initial three accused individuals, passed away in jail on May 10th of 1692 while awaiting trial. Let's talk about the jail real quick. So, they're not going to Club Med. It's a stable, basically. And now, we're talking what... May in Massachusetts, probably pretty cold, and basically they were just put in shackles to where they could stand, like their hands were in shackles, and they could, you know, stand or hang, basically. And 
some people were even put in like torture devices and stuff but we'll get to that but i just wanted to say that it's not surprising that someone would die under these circumstances right all right well additional warrants were issued for the arrest of 36 more people as examinations continued in salem village among those named were sarah dustin and tears Bethia Carter Sr. and her daughter Bethia Carter Jr., George Jacobs Sr., and his granddaughter Margaret Jacobs, John Willard, Alice Parker, and Pudiator? Pudiator? I'm going to say that. Abigail Soames, George Jacobs Jr., Daniel Andrew, and Rebecca Jacobs. I like that you can have female seniors and juniors. Yeah. I think that needs to come back. Great. Anyway, just, a, just an aside. Also included were Sarah Buckley and her daughter Mary Witheridge, among others. The list of accused individuals continued to expand and additional warrants were issued for the arrest of a few more people. Among those were Elizabeth Colson, Elizabeth Hart, Thomas Farrar Sr. Oh my god, there's so many. There's 500 people in this community. Yeah. This is like 14% of the people being accused so far. Do you want to you want to just rattle through those names real quick because sure. I, I do think that people need to hear it and, and these people were wrong you know a lot of them were wrongfully executed so I think you know it bears hearing their names yeah or you can just impose the next section over where I'm just reading names but however you want to do it but we got Elizabeth Colson, Elizabeth Hart Thomas Farrar Sr. Roger Tuthaker Sarah Proctor, Sarah Bassett, Susanna Roots, Mary DeRich, Sarah Pease, Elizabeth Carey, Martha Carrier, Elizabeth Fosdick, Wilmot Red, Sarah Rice, Elizabeth Howe, Captain John Alden, William Proctor, John Flood, Mary Tuthaker, her daughter Margaret Tuthaker, and Arthur Abbott, among others that remain unnamed. By the end of May, when the court convened, the total number of individuals in custody had reached 62. And on May 31st of that year, Cotton Mather, our prominent figure that we've talked about, wrote a letter to one of the judges, John Richards, who was a member of Mather's congregation. In this letter, Mather expressed his endorsement of the ongoing prosecutions related to the witch trials. However, he also offered a word of caution, advising Richards not to place excessive reliance on purely spectral evidence. Mather emphasized that such evidence should be weighed carefully and not be given more weight than it can reasonably bear. Mather further acknowledged that the devil had been known to manipulate appearances, sometimes taking the form of innocent or even virtuous individuals. He emphasized his belief that God, being just, often provides a means for the swift vindication of those who have been wrongly accused and subjected to such spectral evidence. In essence... Mather's letter to Judge John Richards conveyed his support for the prosecutions while urging caution and careful consideration when evaluating the evidence presented in these witch trials. So he's saying the right thing off the bat, right? Like, he's, he's saying that, well, you shouldn't put too much weight on spectral evidence. And you have to look at it from his point of view. Yeah. You know, now I would be like, what are you talking about, dude? You're crazy but from his point of view at the time he's kind of speaking responsibly you know yeah like, he's like good on you for going after something bad but be careful don't get carried away 
Yeah, and and that's what he's saying now. But they get carried away. Let's talk about the formal prosecution in the court of Oyer and Terminer. This is under Chief Magistrate William Stoughton. The court of Oyer and Terminer assembled in Salem Town on June 2nd, 1692 with William Stoughton, the newly appointed Lieutenant Governor, serving as Chief Magistrate. The Crown's attorney prosecuting the cases was Thomas Newton and Stephen Sewell acted as the clerk. The first case brought before the grand jury was Bridget Bishop. The grand jury endorsed all the indictments against her, leading to her trial. Bridget Bishop was portrayed as someone who did not conform to the Puritan lifestyle. She was known to wear black clothing and unconventional costumes, which ran counter to the Puritan norms. And maybe I'm wrong, but uh, like what are Puritans wearing? Like super dark blue? Because it looks like they all dressed in black too. Yeah, yeah. During her exam, prior to the trial, Bishop was questioned about her clothing, particularly a coat that had been oddly cut or torn in two ways. So, that's evidence, right? Totally. Look at how your coat was torn. And that's why they call it a witch hunt. These details were among the factors that contributed to the suspicions and accusations against her during the Salem Witch Trials. Bridget Bishop's unconventional clothing choices, combined with her perceived immoral way of life, reinforced the belief among the jury that she was a witch. Because there's only good and evil. There's no degrees in this community. It's either you're 100% all about God, or you're 100% all about the devil. Her trial took place on the same day as her indictment, and she was subsequently found guilty. On June 3rd, the grand jury issued indictments against Rebecca Nurse and John Willard. However, for reasons that remain unclear, their trials did not commence immediately. But Bridget Bishop was executed by hanging on June 10th, 1692. You want to tell us what our boy Cotton Mather wrote about it? Sure. He wrote, The afflicted state of our poor neighbors that are now suffering by molestations from the invisible world we apprehend so deplorable that we think their condition calls for the utmost help of all persons in their several capacities. We cannot but with all thankfulness acknowledge the success which the merciful God has given unto the sedulous and assiduous endeavors of our honorable rulers to detect the abominable witchcrafts which have been committed in the country, humbly praying that the discovery of those mysterious and mischievous wickedness may be perfected. We judge that, in the prosecution of these and all such witchcrafts, there is need of a very critical and exquisite caution, lest by too much credulity for things received only upon the devil's authority there be a door open for a long train of miserable consequences, and Satan get an advantage over us, for we should not be ignorant of his devices. As in complaints upon witchcrafts, there may be matters of inquiry which do not amount unto matters of presumption, and there may be matters of presumption which yet may not be matters of conviction. So it is necessary that all proceedings thereabout be managed with an exceeding tenderness towards those that may be complained of, 
especially if they have been persons formerly of an unblemished reputation. So, my interpretation of this is go easy. That's pretty much what it's, um, that, I mean, that's how I'm taking it. We have a, uh, we have a summation by a historian, but my reading of this, it's very difficult, but it seems to be this, you know, Cotton Mathers is saying, don't go so hard on these people. You know, you think that you're doing the right thing, but it may be that this is what the devil wants you to do. The devil wants you to do this thing and this to start a long chain of consequences. Spoiler alert, it does. And that we should, in particular, not be taking only spectral evidence into account. We should not say that an accusation equals a real implication and that that implication really should be a conviction. You know, like saying that if you're accused, it doesn't really mean that you're like implicitly involved. And just that you have been involved in some way with these people does not necessarily mean that you are guilty of the thing that they're, you know, that they are convicted of. In particular, if you have otherwise an excellent reputation, which a lot of these people did. I think you really nailed it. He is saying, okay, these people have been accused. That's it. Just accused. We have to treat them kindly. We have to treat them with respect and dignity. And when they go before the grand jury you can't just take spectral evidence there has to be corroborating evidence you know like it could be in the form of even something like the birthmarks or something like that but there has to be other evidence and we can't just jump into this and just start executing people left and right based on this kind of stuff right but that is exactly what they do. Yep, and we will find out more about that after a quick break. Keepers. From late June to early July, oh, it's so nice to read modern English, <laughs> the grand juries issued indictments against several individuals, including Sarah Good, Elizabeth House, Susanna Martin, Elizabeth Proctor, John Proctor, Martha Carrier, Sarah Wilds, and Dorcas Horror. Among them, Sarah Good, Elizabeth Howe, Susanna Martin, and Sarah Wilds, along with Rebecca Nurse, were brought to trial and subsequently found guilty, and all five women were executed by hanging on July 19th of 1692. Now, before we jump ahead, now, they talk about going to the gallows in some of the research, but from what I understand, it was just a tree. And you stood on a barrel, and they put a noose around your neck, you know, hung it from the tree, put a bag over your face. You were not dropped. There was no snapping of the neck, which is what hanging is intended to do to make a quick, painless death. They basically suffocated horribly for minutes 
while people watched and called them names and stuff like that. So it's it it was particularly brutal. That's what I was trying to get across. In mid-July, an incident occurred in Andover, where the constable invited the afflicted girls from Salem Village to meet with his wife in an attempt to determine the source of her affliction. Ann Foster, her daughter, Mary Lacey Sr., and her granddaughter, Mary Lacey Jr., all confessed to being witches during this encounter. Around this time, Anthony Checkley was appointed by Governor Phipps to replace Thomas Newton as the Crown's attorney. Newton had taken an appointment in New Hampshire, and Checkley assumed the role of prosecuting the witchcraft cases during this tumultuous period of the Salem Witch Trials. So, this is a chance for things to be put right. This is a a chance. Yeah, for some new blood to come in, new eyes to see this stuff, be like, whoa, whoa, no. Yeah, does that happen? can't be accusing people because a little girl goes into convulsions. During the month of August, the grand juries issued indictments against several individuals, including George Burroughs, Mary Eastie, Martha Corey, and George Jacobs Sr. Subsequently, trial juries found Martha Carrier, George Jacobs Sr., George Burroughs, John Willard, Elizabeth Proctor, and John Proctor guilty. It is notable that Elizabeth Proctor, due to being pregnant, received a temporary stay of execution. However, on August 19th of 1692, the executions were carried out for basically everybody else. I'm not going to read through the list of names again. George Burroughs, along with others, was taken out into the streets of Salem in a cart headed to his execution. When he reached the scaffold, he delivered a speech in a solemn and serious manner, passionately expressing his innocence. His prayer, which which concluded with the recitation of the Lord's Prayer, a feat witches were believed unable to perform, was eloquent and moving, evoking tears from many witnesses. Some onlookers were so affected that they seemed inclined to prevent the execution. However, the accusers claimed that the devil himself was guiding Burroughs during his final moments. As Burroughs was hanged, Cotton Mather, mounted on a horse, addressed the crowd. So before we jump into his statement, George Burroughs was a former minister, and he he was claimed by some of the witnesses to be something that they called the black man or the black hat man and they were saying that his specter his spirit was this black hat man that was coming to visit them and that he may be the devil himself but this is where cotton mather flip-flops go ahead well yeah but he's always kind of had their back but you're right this is more like Nope, we're doing the right thing than his previous, like, you know, use restraint sort of position. I don't know. I can't believe that all these people really believe that these people are witches. I just, I can't believe that they all think that. Yeah. So where did I leave off? That he mounted on a horse and addressed the crowd. He clarified that Burroughs had not been an ordained minister and sought to assure the people of his guilt, noting that the devil often masquerades as an angel of light. Mather's words somewhat pacified the crowd, allowing the executions to proceed. After Burroughs was hanged, his body was dragged by a halter to a shallow grave between the rocks. His shirt and breeches were removed, and he was dressed in old trousers from another executed individual. Burroughs was placed in the grave alongside others, with parts of his body left uncovered due to the tight space. In September, the grand juries issued indictments against 18 more people. 
The grand jury did not indict William Proctor initially, but he was later rearrested on new charges. On September 19th, a significant event occurred when Giles Corey, during his trial, chose not to enter a plea. As a consequence, he was subjected to a brutal form of torture known as pain for to dure. This involved pressing him under an increasingly heavy load of stones in an attempt to force him to plead. Giles Corey, however, remained steadfast and refused. As a result, he tragically lost his life due to this extreme form of torture, and it took several days for him to die. This guy is balls of steel, man. The patron saint of dying hard. Yeah. During this period, four individuals pled guilty to witchcraft, while 11 others were tried and subsequently found guilty. On September 20th, Cotton Mather wrote to Stephen Sewell, do you want to read the quote? That I may be more capable to assist in lifting up a standard against the infernal enemy, requesting a narrative of the evidence given in at the trials of half a dozen, or if you please, a dozen of the principal witches that have been condemned. On September 22, 1692, eight more persons were executed. After execution, Mr. Noyes turning him to the bodies, said, What a sad thing it is to see eight firebrands of hell hanging there. Dorcas Whore, that's another, <laughs> that's another name that keeps coming up that it's it's hard to be like, okay, D-O-R-C-A-S-H-O-A-R. I don't know how else to say that. Was granted a temporary reprieve, supported by several ministers with the condition that she would make a confession of being a witch. Mary Bradbury, who was 77 years old at the time, managed to evade prosecution and escape with the help of her family and friends. Abigail Faulkner Sr., who was pregnant, also received a temporary reprieve, and there are reports suggesting that her reprieve eventually turned into a stay of charges. Cotton Mather promptly completed his account of the trials titled Wonders of the Invisible World. This manuscript was handed over to Governor Phipps upon his return from military operations in Maine in early October. Historian George Lincoln Burr notes that both Phipps' letter and Mather's manuscript were likely sent to London on the same ship around mid-October, thus transmitting the developments and details of the Salem Witch Trials to England. And I will read uh, what Governor Phipps wrote in Boston on October 12th. I hereby declare that as soon as I came from fighting and understood what danger some of their innocent subjects might be exposed to, if the evidence of the afflicted persons only did prevail either to the committing or trying any of them, I did before any application was made unto me about it put a stop to the proceedings of the court, and they are now stopped till their majesty's pleasure be known. So he's saying, as soon as I got back from fighting, I stopped this thing. Like, nobody even said anything to me. No one made any application to me. I stopped it. Did the right thing. And then on October, yep, and on October 29th, Judge Sewell wrote, The court of Oyer and Terminer count themselves thereby dismissed. Asked whether the court of Oyer and Terminer should sit, expressing some fear of inconvenience by its fall, the governor said it must fall. So basically, it, it seems that yeah, there the court are also writing to England and saying like, "Hey, he stopped us. What gives?" <laughs> well, do you want to know what gives? We're just, we're just executing innocent people. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. Okay. So what gives is, is it a coincidence that Governor Phipps' wife 
Lady Mary Phipps was among those accused during this time? Oh, so maybe he's not such a great guy after all. And he's just like, oh, they're accusing my wife. No, I'm going to stop this because I'm a powerful man. Anyway. Ain't that interesting how that works? It is. Following Governor Phipps' intervention, there were no further executions related to the Salem witch trials. So no matter how it comes about, it's a good thing. In January 1693, a new legal proceeding took place with the establishment of the Superior Court of Judicature, Court of Assisi, and General Gal Delivery in Salem, Essex County. This court was again presided over by William Stoughton, now serving as Chief Justice. Anthony Checkley continued in his role as the Attorney General, and John Elatson was the clerk. The first cases heard in January 1693 were those of five individuals who had been indicted but not tried in September. It included Sarah Buckley, Margaret Jacobs, Rebecca Jacobs, Mary Whitridge, and Job Tukey. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds like something Trump would call somebody. (laughs) Like, oh, over there in China, Job Tukey. Oh, man, you need to urban dictionary that and see what pops up. See if something comes up, yeah. It's like, oh, it's a Vietnamese person who now makes LG phones or something. (laughs) Importantly, all five of them were found not guilty. So that's good. During this time, grand juries were convened, leading to the dismissal of charges against many of the accused individuals. But 16 more people were indicted and subsequently tried. Elizabeth Johnson Jr., Sarah Wardwell, and Mary Post were all found guilty. As the legal proceedings continued, Chief Justice William Stoughton wrote execution warrants for the remaining individuals, including Elizabeth Johnson Jr., Sarah Wardwell, and Mary Post. And there were more. I don't know. I don't know if I want to get into a capital punishment discussion, Mm. but I do think that this case really illustrates the need for not such an immediate execution. It's almost like they're gangsters that are finding witnesses against them and they're like, oh shit, we gotta we gotta get rid of them. You yeah. know, they know too much. And these people are just being executed so quick. However, Governor Phipps intervened by issuing pardons sparing their lives from execution. In late January or early February, the court reconvened in Charlestown, Middlesex County. During this session, grand juries were convened and five individuals were tried. Sarah Cole, Lydia Dustin, Sarah Dustin, Mary Taylor, and Mary Toothaker. All five of them were found not guilty. But despite being declared not guilty, these women were not immediately released. They were required to pay their jail fees before they could be released from custody. So they're in a stall, chained up. They're not prisoners, they're hostages. And they have to pay for this. That's crazy. Yeah, Yeah, like they're in a Marriott. Mm -hmm. They would, 
you know, lose money by not being able to work or whatever trade they were involved in. So Lydia Dustin passed away in jail on March 10th, 1693, underscoring the harsh conditions and toll of the prolonged legal proceedings. By the end of April, the court held its sessions in Boston, Suffolk County. During this session, Captain John Alden was cleared of charges through a proclamation. The court addressed a case involving Mary Watkins, a servant girl who had falsely accused her mistress of witchcraft. In May, the court convened in Ipswich and conducted various grand jury proceedings. As a result of these proceedings, charges were dismissed against a majority of the individuals who had been accused. But five people, Susanna Post, Eunice Fry, Mary Bridges Jr., Mary Barker, and William Barker Jr. face trial. So we see a lot of people getting off and a lot of people getting convicted and, you know, continually indicted. There's not a switch really where people are like, oh, yeah, we messed up. That mm-hmm. was that was crazy, you know. We got to rectify this. Yeah, they're they're kind of carrying on, but like they didn't just stop. They like they're they're winding it down, maybe. But right, they're like we're gonna phase this out within five years. So the five people we just mentioned were found not guilty, and that brought an end to the series of trials and executions that plagued the region. And public opinion was shifted, and the legal system started to recognize the lack of substantial evidence for the accusations of witchcraft. But it seems like at this point what we've seen is that the devil has done exactly what the Puritans didn't want it to do and has caused many innocent people to lose their lives. Yeah. So, I don't know, you want to wrap it up there? Yeah, so at this point, the trials have cast a dark shadow over the community, resulting in the deaths of many innocent people and leaving a lasting impact on the history and memory of this colonial area. I mean, to the point that, you know, a witch hunt is a pretty common phrase. I've seen that used in the workplace a lot. When somebody gets in trouble, it's like, ah, they're just on a witch hunt trying to find something to get me over or to write me up over. This is a story that... A lot of people think they know, but they really don't. Yeah, there's a lot. I mean, I I think a lot of people, including me before this, thought that this was super, super localized. Mm -hmm. You know, like one community went nuts for a little while. But this is this is a pretty large group of people in a very um, organized sort of formal system for doing this. And it Mm -hmm. took place over years. And there were a lot of circumstances that went into it and sort of, you know, a lack of control over some of these communities and a lack of oversight, you know, which was eventually kind of set right by the governor. And whether that Mm. was just because his wife was implicated or maybe that was what brought it to his attention, maybe otherwise he's worried about other things and suddenly, you know, his wife getting pulled into it. He's like, well, what are you guys doing? Yeah. You know, but it's scary i mean and this is kind of i feel like there's still a potential for this today oh absolutely right i mean a lot of the stuff that i've watched and read you know some of the more 
brutal authoritarian regimes that have come up have been because of religious extremism or like extreme beliefs and really you know required rigid adherence to those yeah if you look at pictures of like iran and iraq in the 60s they look as progressive as anything else you you couldn't tell the difference between that and like london at the same time or new york or la that's interesting. It, or sydney or whatever it's they were developing exactly the same as the rest of us very similar culture very progressive and then something happened <laughs> you know and i know that we're fighting back and forth against that now but it's just it's interesting how just political events can completely change the views of like what is good and proper and what is normal behavior and what is acceptable in a community standing out was a terrible thing you were yeah. supposed to just conform and fit in and just the slightest yeah, your jacket's torn. Your jacket's yeah. torn, or you're like, I don't know if a little kid should be making accusations like this. Right. And those make you stand out, and now you're, you're being looked at. One of the women uh, that you talked about, I, I can't remember what the name of the torture device was. It, it was oh, yeah. something French or whatever, but basically it's kind of like a wheel where they bend you backwards around it and tie palms of your hands to the heels of your feet only bending backwards and like they left this girl on there for days just may have even been burrows actually I, I don't know I guess we'll probably get into it but anyway you want to tell them what they need to know yeah like we said at the beginning like, subscribe, rate, share, whatever you can do. It really helps us out. Let us know what you would like to hear or any comments you have about our terrible pronunciation or the bad takes that we have about you know, authoritarian governments. You can do that by sending a message over to crypticpodcast.gmail.com. You can check out Parabox at the link in the show notes, which we're always you know, promoting them because we think their stuff is actually really cool. And you can check out our stuff at CrypticPodcastStore.com. And make sure to tune back in on Thursday. We've got a lot more to cover. We'll see you then. Good evening, Crypt Keepers.